again, friends, and welcome on into episode 51 of the SCO Show. Mark Schofield back in the big chair for today, Thursday, December 12th, 2019. We are under two weeks to go to the Christmas holiday, so those of you that are looking for some last-minute gift ideas, well, here's one for the host of one of your favorite Patriots podcasts. Leave a review for the Pat's Pulpit Podcast Network on the old Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Always love to see the reviews. Today's show, we're going to do a couple of different things. We're going to talk some Bengals. We're going to talk about why I think this could be a get-right game for a part of the Patriots offense. And a little bit later, we're going to wade into a little bit of draft talk, just ever so briefly, because it seems that silly season has arrived. And with silly season upon us, it's always a good time to push back on some of the narratives that sometimes get created around certain players. But before we do any of that, your usual cavalcade of reminders, please do follow along with the hijinks on the Twitter machine at Mark Schofield. Check out the work at places like InsideThePylon.com, Pro Football Weekly, Matt Waldwin's Rookie Scouting Portfolio, and yes, that trio of SB Nation websites, Big Blue View, Bleeding Green Nation, and right here at Pat's Pulpit. Now, I said that we were going to talk about the Bengals at the outset, and we are going to focus on why this Sunday might be a get-right game for a portion of the Patriots' offense. And you might think that, given my background, I'm going to talk about why Tom Brady is going to go out and light the world on fire, the passing game. But I really want to talk today about the Patriots' ground attack, and more specifically, some things that have worked against the Bengals this season when teams have run the ball against them. And... There's a piece, you know, complimentary to this that's going to be going up on Pat's pulpit where you can see some of the plays I'm going to be talking about. But really what I want to start with are some numbers, all right? Sometimes when I do this, I, I try to tie the numbers and the film together. And when you look at what the Bengals have done this year against running backs, I did this before. I've done this at times where I bring up fantasy football numbers and... I know sometimes the the marriage in analysis of fantasy football analysis and you know schematic X's and O's analysis sometimes doesn't overlap that well. This is an example of where it actually does a bit because if you look at fantasy points allowed per game by defenses to running backs this year, the Bengals are a bottom 10 team in that defensive category. They're allowing 21.6 points per game on the ground to running backs. Now, they're behind such teams as Carolina Panthers, the Jacksonville Jaguars, the Detroit Lions, the Green Bay Packers, and yes, the Kansas City Chiefs, which of course begs the question, what happened last week? And we'll just move on. I want to talk about Russian defense numbers, and these get skewed a bit by game script, but the Cincinnati Bengals are allowing a league-high 156.7 yards per game on the ground. Again, that's a league-high. Now, a Game script obviously plays a role here. They're losing most of their games. They're 1-12. And, and so in a lot of their games, they're going up against an opponent who in the fourth quarter is trying to salt away the game. So they're going to run the football. So you see that number tick up, which is why you then get into a more micro level in terms of yards per attempt. They're allowing 4.9 yards per attempt, fourth most in the league behind Jacksonville, Carolina, and yes, Kansas City, I will gloss over that one more time. What has worked against the Bengals? Well, pretty much any schematic design. Now, 
as a Patriots fan, you probably know that the Patriots run a mix of offensive concepts when it comes to their ground game. They will do some outside zone, some wide zone. They will do some inside zone. They will do some some gap and some power. They'll run some duo, which is a power type design that looks like zone, where you get a combination of, of a pair of double team blocks, work it up to the weak side linebacker. And all of those designs have worked against the Cincinnati Bengals this year. For example, and sort of mirroring the piece that I talked about that's going to be up on Pat's pulpit. Bengals run, no, Bengals face an in, an outside zone run and play from the Cleveland Browns just last week. And now I'm not the world's foremost expert on run fits from a defensive perspective, like where guys are supposed to fit in which gap. But on this outside zone, wide zone play to the left side of the offense, either Jermaine Pratt or Nick Vigil misses their run fit. Either Vigil overruns it or Pratt tries to cheat and backdoor this, but somebody doesn't take the A-gap. And that allows Nick Chubb on this outside zone play, wide zone play to the left to spot a backside cutback opportunity to make his bend read. Now remember, on outside zone, wide zone plays, the running back has three potential reads. The bang read, where he tacks right through where he's aiming spot. Usually the, the inside hip of the left tackle is where he'd be aiming for. If he sees a hole open there, that's his bang read. If he wants to bounce it to the outside, that's a bounce read where he tries to flow to the out edge, get to the outside. If he sees a cutback opportunity, that's his bend read. And here, Chubb identifies a cutback opportunity because somebody doesn't fill that backside A gap. Either the one linebacker, the linebacker on that side of the formation, I think it's him, Pratt, because he's a rookie, or it's Vigil, the four-year veteran who overruns it. But somebody misses that opportunity, and there's a cutback lane to exploit. And Ben Reed's or cutback lanes are going to be something to watch for on Sunday. The Bengals' defense provides opposition running games many opportunities on the backside. There was a play against the Jets in Week 13. Jets run inside zone off of a split zone design, so you have a wing tight end blocking across the formation. He's Le'Veon Bell is aiming to the right side of the formation. Offensive line flows in that direction. But once more, you see over-pursuit from the second level. Pratt flows outside to his left. That enables the offensive line to seal off a backside crease, and Bell attacks it. Even on gap power designs, the Jets, for example, they run a lot of GT counter, guard tackle counter, where you have both a guard and a tackle pulling in front of the play. Although, in the examples in the piece, you'll see a tight end pulling instead because of the fronts that they're facing. There's an example where they run GT design to the right. They pull left guard Alex Lewis, number 71, as well as rookie tight end Trayvon Wesco, 85. Bilal Powell uses counter footwork, aims for the right tackle coming right behind Lewis, but once more, he sees that crease to the backside and exploits it, attacking up the middle for a decent gain. And so this is an example where you see the film and the numbers tell you a story. And the story is this, the Bengals will give up yards on the ground. And so there is an opportunity now for the Patriots who have struggled running the football on a consistent basis this year to try to get something going on the ground. And when I say struggled to get the running game going, you just look at sort of a week-to-week basis. They've only topped 100 yards rushing 
five times this season. They actually got the ground game going early against Houston. And this was their best ground game on the season with their 145 rushing yards. But you're talking in, in the middle of the season stretch here. 74 against the Jets, 79 against the Browns, 74 against the Ravens, 74 against the Eagles, 101 and 145 against the Texans, and then 94 last week against the Chiefs, a team that, as we've talked about from a numbers basis, they're giving up yardage on the ground. And so I really think that as much as we like to and tend to worry about the Patriots' passing game, and it makes sense, right? You're talking about Tom Brady, a quarterback, Arguably the greatest of all time, somebody that is going into the Hall of Fame, first ballot Hall of Famer, all the credentials in the world, and we know the emphasis that the Patriots put on the passing game. That hasn't worked, but there's an opportunity here for the ground game to click. And it could, in a sense, mirror what we saw last year, right? Down the stretch, they relied on the ground game, they relied on... James Devlin paving the way for Sony Michelle, and it helped get them into the playoffs. Remember that Week 16 game against Buffalo last year? The passing game looked bad, but Sony Michelle had a bit of a breakout kind of game. Could we see that repeat this year with this game this week and then Buffalo again coming to Gillette Stadium next Saturday? I think there's a chance for that to come into place. And so I'm going to be watching the ground game this week. I know that this is a game that the Patriots should win and win handily. Yes, there's all sorts of other stuff circling around the team right now from, you know, the, the, the do your job documentary taping and all of that. I know there are some expectations now that the Patriots are going to come out and roll, and they should. But I'm going to be paying attention to the ground game. Can they get it going this week against a defense that from the numbers and the film is given opportunities up? Up next, silly season is upon us, and I'm going to have some sort of quick thoughts Mark Schofield back with you now on episode 51 of the Scho Show. And yes, we're going to do some draft stuff because this is where the rubber meets the road when it comes to sort of football coverage, right? You know, people sometimes ask me, you know, especially when I was doing Locked on Patriots, which was uh, five days a week, every week, 52 weeks out of the year, right? How, how do you do a show five days a week? How do you cover football in the summer? You know, I remember when I first made the move to cover football, you know, pseudo-professionally when I made the change from being a lawyer to doing what I do now. You know, now I guess you could say I actually do it professionally. But before I was getting paid on a consistent basis to do it, when we started Inside the Pylon, I remember my wife asking me, you know, after the Patriots won Super Bowl forty nine, because again, back in the day, ITP was a Patriot site. You know, what do you do now? And it's like, well... I guess we cover the draft. And I had no idea the draft industrial complex that exists. I do now. I do now understand that it is a 365 business covering the draft year-round. And there are people and there are websites like the Draft Network and other places that do it year-round and do it extremely well. And obviously during the season, especially as Patriots fans, we don't really think draft until January and February, right? But it's a year-round thing. And silly season, it seems, is upon us. And before I dive into this glaring example that is right here in front of our faces, it's important to talk about the life cycle of a quarterback prospect. We are seeing it play out in many ways 
to be expected. We're seeing it being flipped on its head a little bit with a quarterback I'll talk about in a moment. But the traditional life cycle of a quarterback is this. In the summer, when everybody's doing their summer scouting and getting ready for the season ahead, there are guys that get propped up. This year, a prime example of that is Jordan Love from Utah State. Somebody who I bought into a little bit in terms of the raw talent and the arm talent and the hype. And then they struggle a little bit and they fade away from consciousness as people start to look elsewhere. The ultimate example of this, I think, was Deshaun Watson. Because going into his final year at Clemson, he was QB1 in everybody's mind. And then he had some struggles out of the gate. He threw some interceptions early. He had some trouble with turnovers. And people moved away from him. Not everybody, though. I still have the takes. I have the receipts to Sean Watson no matter what. But people faded. He faded. And people looked elsewhere. They looked to Mitchell Trubisky or to Sean Kaiser or even, in a sense, Patrick Mahomes. And yeah, he won a national championship. And yeah, he looked great doing it. But people moved on. Jordan Love is an example of that this year. Jacob Eason. Excuse me, Justin Herbert is an example of that this year as well, where people thought he was QB1 coming in or at least had a chance to battle Tua for QB1. Had some up and downs this year. People are questioning Justin Herbert. He's faded a bit. And so there's this life cycle that quarterbacks in this sort of draft industrial complex undergo where they get promoted, they get talked up, they get hyped up, and then they have an up and down season And people move away. What's been interesting this year is that we've had the reverse. We had a guy that nobody was really thinking about. When I wrote about him a couple of times this summer, it was a, he's a day three guy that's intriguing right now. And he could rise. And he could be somebody that maybe plays himself to a senior bowl invite. And that's Joe Burrow, who now everybody's looking at as a lock to go one overall. You know, and I mentioned in the post-game show Sunday night about my daughter's birthday. We had a family event at the house Sunday, and then at my daughter's birthday party. And I was getting asked by family members, like, you're going to have to write a book about this guy. This guy's seemingly, you know, coming from out of nowhere. You know, it is important to remember that he was a highly recruited quarterback. You know, wanted to play at Nebraska of all places. They didn't recruit him, so he ends up going to Ohio State in a quarterback room where they had JT Barrett and Cardale Jones. They had Dwayne Haskins and Joe Burrow. You know, incredibly talented quarterback room. You know, and so this idea that Joe Burrow is now flipping the script is fascinating to me because he was a quarterback that, despite his pedigree, it didn't click for him at Ohio State, got an opportunity to go to LSU, and even last year had some up and down moments, but you never really got the sense watching him that he's going to be the guy. Well, he's the guy. And yes, the struggles from Herbert have helped Joe Burrow's case to his injury has helped Joe Burrow's case. Although I think when he went into Tuscaloosa and beat Tua and beat Alabama, he solidified himself as QB1. And I even said that on the show. If he was going to go in and do that, that's it. It's done. He's QB1. And so we're seeing the cycle play out almost in reverse now because he's had this huge upswing in his draft stock. He's gone from a quarterback that I thought maybe gets a senior bowl invite to Man, is he even going to go? Does he need it? Maybe he goes, but doesn't do the on the field stuff. I think 
he'll end up going because it's a great opportunity for him to continue his run. But his stock has risen to the point where if he suddenly says, look, tweak something during the college football playoff, I'm out, I'd understand it. But now we're into silly season. Now we're into red flag season. And what do I mean by red flag season? Here's a great example. Marcus Mariota coming out of the University of Oregon. Scout said he had no flags, no red flags, nothing to medical, off the field, personality, no red flags, completely clean, which they then said was a red flag because there had to be something wrong with him. You know, these red flags that pop up from anonymous scouts during the draft process, and we're starting to see it with Joe Burrow because there was a piece on ESPN, it's an insider piece, where a, a number of NFL executives were interviewed by Jeremy Fowler about the top of the quarterback, of the top of the draft and the quarterback board, and whether it was Tua or Justin Herbert or Joe Burrow. And in the piece, Fowler, Fowler writes, while Alabama's Tua Tagovailoa continues to struggle with injuries and Oregon's Justin Herbert has been underwhelming at times as a passer, like I was just saying, LSU's Joe Burrow has capitalized with near flawless play in 2019. However, that seems to have not changed how people view the quarterback class, at least in the inside of the league. One longtime AFC scout, most defensive coordinators will say, who scares me the most, the scouts get. And Tua and Herbert will scare teams more than Joe Burrow. There was also another quote about what the Bengals might do with that first pick, and another AFC executive said that they've got so many needs. Ryan Finley's not bad. He's a big kid with a big arm. I was a friend, I mean a fan, excuse me, a bit of Ryan Finley coming out. I would never say that Ryan Finley had his or had, or has, or whatever, a big arm. Matter of fact, one of the pieces I wrote when I first came over to Pat's pulpit was breaking down Ryan Finley and his potential fit in New England. And when I got to the weaknesses section of the, the scouting report I put together on him, you know, here's one of the things that I said about him. Arm strength is also an issue with Finley. He spun the ball pretty well down to Mobile, and that was a good sign for him. But on film, there were occasions when throws to the boundary or deeper downfield would hand in the air on him. That might get to more of a scheme limitation with him than anything else, but it is certainly something to watch with Finley. He'll need to show improvement in this area to raise his ceiling as a passer. And believe me, I wasn't alone on this, because when that article from Jeremy Fowler came out, my Twitter timeline, or perhaps yours as well, was filled with people from the draft Twitter evaluation world just crushing that idea of Ryan Finley having a big arm. It's not true. But we're into that silly season where people start to talk and give opinions and start to say things about quarterbacks, maybe to move people off a scent or maybe just because they have a microphone in front of them, maybe because they know what they're talking about, maybe because they don't. And what was interesting in the wake of this article was a tweet that I saw from Kevin Cole at PFF. Kevin works for Pro Football Focus, does some data analysis, very smart guy. And he said that 
oftentimes the draft Twitter world is ahead of the NFL when it comes to things like Joe Burrow, his arm strength, Ryan Finley, and things like that. And whatever you want to say about, say, the draft Twitter world, there are things that we do get right, you know, and and maybe scheme fit and rankings and things like that we don't agree on, we don't get right. You know, people will sometimes have what seem to be outlandish opinions. But consensus group think on the idea of Ryan Finley having a big arm doesn't work in Ryan Finley's favor. Consensus group think on Joe Burrow, maybe people might quibble around the edges about his potential ceiling or his overall NFL career and what it might look like. I think most people have come around to the idea that this guy's QB1. He has the goods. He's legit. When you look at quarterbacks, sometimes you just come back to the tape and the film and what they've done. And now people are starting to chip away at the idea that, look, he's older. Okay. You know, maybe there isn't the greatest track record of older quarterbacks going on to have in draft success. But I think somebody with Finley's performance to I mean, excuse me, with Burrow's performance and success to date over the course of one year, you have to sort of respect what he's done. And it's not like a situation where he was just a one-year starter. Look, he was a starter at LSU last year. It just didn't click for this offense until they went to the 70-30 like pass-run split where they suddenly became a pass and attack to be reckoned with, which is not something you usually say about LSU. And so with silly season upon us, I felt like it was time to sort of dive into the draft. Hopefully we can push the draft off as long as we can here at the SCO Show. But we'll be getting into it hardcore pretty soon here because once the calendar flips to January, once the um, wheels up down from Mobile for the Senior Bowl and who knows where else my travels will take me this draft season, we're going to be doing draft a couple times a week here on this show. We're great guests, great people to talk to. And of course, we'll be covering it, especially in the Scotia Slack channel where like we did with the Slack channel last draft season, we had rooms set up, different channels set up. We could talk prospects, share some clips, some films, some scouting reports, get super nerdy together. So that's what we got to head to look forward to at some point. Hopefully the Patriots can get back on track and we can think about it a little bit more down the road. But either way, we'll be doing it together. That's what we do here at the SCO Show. That will do it for today. Quick and easy show. I'll be back Saturday with a quick you know, episode of Pat's Pulpit Radio Rewind. We won't have a rake scale or anything like that. We'll just have some news, some notes, some best of, and all that stuff. Until next time, friends, please do keep on blessing that Patriots reign down in Foxborough.